Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and then 11 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to, to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Good to see so many of you here. Thank you for... um all of your support and encouragement in this transition. It's a little bit of a scary time because the room is half as, in, half as full as it, we're used to it being, which means you and I, we've got a lot of work to do, don't we, to invite our friends. And that's one of the reasons why we did this. So uh, just to keep that challenge in front of you, our dream and desire is that even as we launch a church in the next few months, that we would um, fill the room up twice the way it has been to this point, filled the one time. And so uh, let's keep that in front of us because we believe that is a necessary part of us becoming uh, the church in the city that we love, that we feel like God has called us to be. Now, this is a very um, very familiar passage this morning, very powerful. Uh, Jeff was sitting behind me, and as Susan finished reading it, which she does so well, he just said, Phew. I just heard him say, you know, because it really is a powerful story. 
uh, and, and it's somewhat familiar to us, and I'm hoping that I can come at it with you a little bit differently this morning that maybe uh, sheds some light on some new things for you. Uh, we are returning to our study of the Gospel of Luke this fall. And so for the fall, we're going to spend the three months of the fall, October, excuse me, September, October, and November, looking at three different themes that really are, are unique to Luke's Gospel uh, in comparison to the other Gospels. And during September, we're going to talk about the danger of self-righteousness. And so that's why we start with this parable. Now, if you look at the beginning of Luke 15, you'll see there in those first few verses what occasions the parable. And this is important because uh, to read the Gospels correctly, you have to understand that Jesus' stories and teachings don't occur in a vacuum. There's always a context. There's always something going on around him that occasions the stories. And this story is no different. We're told there, verse 1, that two groups followed Jesus around. The immoral, irreligious tax collectors and sinners, verse 1, and the moral, religious Pharisees and the scribes. Now, if it were an old Western movie, all of the tax collectors and the sinners would be the guys dressed in black because they were the bad guys. And all of the Pharisees and the scribes would have been the guys dressed in white because they were the good guys. And yet, a curious thing is happening here, and it happens all throughout the Gospels in Jesus' ministry, and it's just this, that Jesus is receiving the bad guys, not the good guys, and he's eating with the bad guys, not the good guys. He's embracing the immoral, irreligious community and shunning, at least they feel like he's shunning the moral, religious community. And everybody's scandalized by this, and it should be no uh, surprise, especially the good guys. And so if you want a picture, I thought about it this way. Imagine a Republican presidential candidate who intentionally keeps passing up fundraising opportunities with conservative supporters in order to hang out with Planned Parenthood executives. That's what's happening. That is that sort of thing. And that's what occasions this great story. Now, I want to say it this way to you this morning. This, I, want to, I want to come look at this story. My understanding of this story really mirrors my own uh, testimony. And so it, it really has evolved over the years of my relationship with the Lord Jesus. You see, I first used to think, and this is the three points of your outline here, I used to think that the point of this story was that the younger brother should become more like the older brother. But now I really have come to realize that what Jesus is trying to teach us here is that, that the older brother should become more like the father in the story. But in order to do that, number three, he has to first become like his younger brother. See, I used to think that the, older, that the younger needed to be more like the older. Then I realized that, no, it's really that the older needs to be like the father. But in order for him to become like the father, he has to first become more like his younger brother. And those are the three points of the sermon outline there for you that I provided. And so let's just walk through uh, those, three kind of, those three kind of ways of looking at this text, okay? So in my early years, uh, I read this parable as if the teaching was that the younger should really learn to be more like his older brother. And the fact that I'm a firstborn son might have something to do with this, but it seemed obvious to me, okay? You have the firstborn son, and he is the moral, responsible, hardworking one. He's the good son. And then there's his younger brother, his immoral, irresponsible, turned his back on the family, black sheep. He's the bad son. So obviously, you want to be like the good son and not the bad son, right? Seems obvious. But that's not at all what Jesus is teaching here. And I need to explain to you why this is so important and why this way of reading uh, the story is just dead wrong. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, uh, in the 19th century, said, conscience tells every man that, he would, that if he would be saved, he must get rid of sin. Conscience teaches every man that if he would be saved, he must get rid of sin. 
So our story uh, is the story of the prodigal in many ways, every single one of us. And this is a God-whispered truth that lives so deep in every one of us that no matter how hard we try to run away from it, we can't. We have a problem. The problem is sin. Okay? We do things that we know we shouldn't do. We don't do the things that we know we should do. And this has alienated us from God. And the only way to be reconciled to him, and we know this deep, is to get rid of this problem of sin in our lives. This is the great spiritual problem facing every single one of us in the room. Okay? But as our culture becomes increasingly secular and irreligious, the temptation is to laugh this off as being old-fashioned. Oh, that's silly talk. And the way to get rid of sin in that case is to deny that it exists in the first place. But if this is, if this is the case, if there's, there's no use you know, going any further, we might as well just pray, close the service down, because Christianity is a solution to sin. Without the problem of sin, there's no such thing as Christianity. See? If there's no sin, there's no Christianity. So let's assume we're here, you and me, because we still believe these things, that there really is such a thing as sin, and if, we would, and if we would be right with God, then we must be rid of it. And in that case, the danger becomes uh, of trying to avoid... Think, see, let, me say, let me say it this way. The danger we must avoid is thinking that getting rid of sin is our doing. That if we, if we must really... If there is such a thing as sin and we really do have to get rid of it, then it's something that we must do, that we have to stop being bad, that we have to start being good, that we have to stop living for... Ourselves, we need to get religion, so to speak. But that's not Christianity either, see? And it's the, the danger of, of religion, of self-righteousness, of moralism. See, the parable is not revealing the way of salvation as stop being like the younger brother, start being more like the older brother. That completely misses the point. The point is that there are two kinds of lostness. The point is that there are two lost brothers in the story. Now, we know this because of the similarities in the encounter with the father that the two sons have. Okay, look here in the text with me for a minute. When the young son asks for his inheritance early, he's being deeply offensive. He, in essence, is saying to his father, I wish you would hurry up and die because I don't really want a relationship with you. I just want your money. However, by refusing to come into the party at the end of the story, once he arrives home from the day's work, the older son also shames his father in the same way. Cultural norms would have dictated that he be there at the feast celebrating his brother. So he, in front of the whole community, publicly insults his father by refusing to come in. And because it's in front of the whole village, it really is even more serious than what his younger brother did. When the father sees the prodigal on the horizon, verse 20, do you see he runs out, goes out of the house and runs out into the field and brings him in. When the older son comes home in verse 28 and refuses to come into the party. The father again comes out to meet him to try to bring him in. So the story is told this way on purpose to highlight the fact that though they are very different, the two sons are really the same. And so there's a doctrine. And the doctrine is that both of these boys believe that their relationship with their father is based upon their performance and not upon the father's love and mercy. Let me say it again. They both believe that their relationship with their father is based upon their performance not the Father's love and mercy, okay? And that's what it means to be lost. That's what it means to be lost. Now let me show you. When the prodigal son comes home, he, senses, uh, he comes to his senses and he heads for home. What's he expect? What do you think, what do you think he thinks gonna, he is going to greet him when he comes into his father's house, right? What, what's his strategy? He says there, verses 18 and 19, if you look, I will arise, go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See, he doesn't expect to 
to be received warmly. Why? Because he's really, he's really messed up. And what do sons who have messed up like he has deserve? Well, they deserve to be kicked to the curb. So his only hope, the only thing he can kind of figure out in his head is maybe, maybe the father will take me in, not as a son, but as a servant. And over time, over time, he'll let me pay back the debt. See, he thought like I thought at the time. <clears throat> earlier in my, in, my, uh, in my Christian experience. See, I thought that conversion, that spiritual awakening, when it happened in somebody's life, it really meant, um, meant that before, <clears throat> you know, you were really, really bad. And so now I'm really turning a new page, and I'm going to be really, really good, and I'm going to hope that at the end of my life I can do enough good that it'll outweigh all the bad I've done. If you dig deep into a lot of people's the way they articulate their experience of, of religion and Christianity in our culture, it'll sound similar to that. But here's why that's not right. See, look at the older son. He believes the same thing as his younger brother. He says, verse 29, and this is great. He says, these many years, speaking to his father, I've served you. That, that word really means slaved. I've been slaving. I'm no different than a slave in your field, and I never disobeyed your command, and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. See, the younger boy hopes to be a servant, the older boy already is one. I've slaved for you. He's just as lost as his younger brother. He believes that if you're good, you get rewarded. That if you're bad, you get punished. And yet in the story, what happens is, is that the crisis in the story is nobody gets what they deserve. The bad son at the end is being celebrated. The good son is not. And his whole world begins to fall apart. So what's the lesson? Tim Keller, who's a pastor in our denomination, puts it this way. He said, these two brothers were the same. Each of them rebelled, but one did so by being very bad, and the other did so by being extremely good. Do you realize then, he goes on to say, what Jesus is teaching, you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. See, being lost doesn't mean you're a bad person and you need to become a good person You can be a bad person and be lost, but you can be a good person and still be lost. Because being lost means that you think your standing with God is based upon your performance and not his grace. Okay? So the lesson isn't that if you're you're more like the younger brother, wake up, become more like the older. The lesson is that whether you're like the younger brother by temperament or you're like the older brother by experience, both... Both brothers and every single one of us in this room need to reorient our lives to God's grace. So you see, I was wrong. I was wrong when earlier in my life I thought the lesson of Jesus' parable was that the prodigal son should become more like his older brother. The problem with older brother types like me is that when they, when uh, is that while they're, you know, definitely moral and responsible and hardworking, as we see in this boy in this. Story, they can also be angry and impatient and full of self-righteousness. And I wasn't long into being a pastor before I saw this in my church and in myself, that all of this hard work, you know, all of these people that were doing all this hard work, always doing the right thing, it seemed to leave people feeling good about themselves and in feeling good about themselves, just being mean and looking down on everybody else. And that's the problem in the Pharisees that Jesus is addressing, isn't it? Up there in verses 1 and 2. That their self-righteousness created this void of love and compassion, especially for the younger brothers in their lives. And so look at this second point with me, the void of self-righteousness. Years ago, I read a book by a Catholic mystic, Henri Nouwen. Fantastic book. 
entitled The Return of the Prodigal Son, which is really an extended meditation. He basically, this is like an introvert's dream, okay? The extroverts in the room will think that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He basically went, he went, basically went to a museum in Paris and sat in front of Rembrandt's painting of The Return of the Prodigal Son for three days and just looked at it and wrote things down in his journal and then wrote a book. And it sounds horrible for some of us, horrible experience. But the book, is, the book is masterful. It really is. And in the prologue of the book, this is what he says. He says, when I am called, what I am called to make true, this is the conclusion he comes to, what I am called to make true is that whether I am the younger or the elder son, I am a son of my compassionate father. Now listen, he says, I am destined to step into my father's place and offer to others the same compassion that he has offered to me. The return to The father is ultimately the challenge to become the father. Being in the father's house requires that I make the father's life my own and become transformed into his image. That's really good. See, though both these boys acted as servants, they were sons. That's the mistake they made. And as sons, they are destined to grow up to resemble their fathers as all sons of fathers do. And so the true lesson of the story is that we all, but especially the older brothers among us, should become like the Father who is compi- kind and compassionate and full of grace. I mean, you might, say, you might say, why pick on the older brothers? And my answer is that because the parable, if you look up there, it's, the parable's directed to them. It's their lack of enthusiasm for the tax collectors and the sinners who are being included in the festivities of the kingdom of heaven that is the problem that Jesus is trying to solve. And the problem is solved when your heart gets melted by the picture of God that Jesus gives us in this story. It really is... I mean, it's even, it's so vivid, it's almost hard for us to fathom. What is God like? The God of the Bible is like the father in this story who has lost a son, but keeps watch for him. Verse 20, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He wasn't taken by surprise by his son's return. He had been watching, waiting, hoping, praying, longing for him to come home from the moment he left. I thought this was so marvelous. Spurgeon, in a sermon on this passage, he, and and um, he, he said, he made the point, kind of in passing, it was pretty amazing, that in the Garden of Eden, when the man and the woman sinned, God's emotional response there in the Garden to their sin was not anger. Now that's amazing if you think about it. Right? He, did, he didn't come into the Garden, uh, Spurgeon said. He didn't cry out, Adam, come here to be judged. But here's Spurgeon's word. With a soft, sorrowful, plaintive voice, he said, Adam, where are you? As if. He was missing him. God missed Adam. Just like the father in this story had been missing his son and watching for him, hoping for him to return. And so if you've been living in a far country, do you know your father in heaven misses you? Can you even fathom that? And when he saw him, look there, verse 20, he felt compassion, not anger, not frustration, How does God feel about you in your struggle and sin? Not anger, not frustration, not disappointment, not regret, compassion. Uh, A man who was a father figure to me and an elder in the church that we were at in Lakeland before we started this this church, his name was John Sweet, uh, who uh, died running Lake Hollingsworth of a massive heart attack a number of years ago. And I went to his funeral and at his funeral... Uh, he has five children. Four of those children ended up in vocational ministry, and so it was a very strong, uh, you know, spiritually strong family. But one of his sons, the middle son, his name's Christopher. 
Christopher gave uh, the long, kind of the long eulogy at, at the funeral, and he told a story. Christopher was the one kid among the five who could never seem to live up to the standards set by his siblings. He's always the one trying his parents' patience. He was the younger brother in a family of older brother-type children. And he told the story when he was a senior in high school at Lakeland Christian School. There was a party uh, the weekend before graduation, and he went, and he had too much to drink. And the administration found out about it, and they expelled him from school two days before graduation. And he said, the worst part of it was, is I knew I had to tell my dad. <laughs> and so he, uh, he, he, and he, and it was marvelous the way he put it. He said, and I just knew, I knew that this would be it. That this would finally be the thing that pushed him over the edge, that pushed him beyond the ability to forgive me, and to, and to love me. I mean, he really, he really felt like this was going to be the end of my, of my father's love for me. He really did. And so he went to the construction site where his dad was working, and he told him, and John's response, and John was a marvelous man, John's response was, well, son, that was pretty stupid. But you know what? We're going to get through it. But since you're not going to school tomorrow, I expect you to show up for work at 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Is that great? Right, that's a good dad. And so... What would have been his last day of school before dawn, Christopher woke up expecting that his dad was going to work him to death. And as he was getting dressed for the day, he looked over at the desk in his room, and there on the desk was a letter from his father. And the letter said, son, it said something like this, son, I've been watching you this year, the kind of friend you've been, the kind of teammate on the basketball team, how hard you've worked in your classes. What a great, what a great year you've had. And I want you to know, I've seen it all. And I'm pleased. And he said in the note was a $50 bill. And he said, today, today is your last day of school. Here's 50 bucks. And this was years ago, so 50 bucks was a lot of money. Here's 50 bucks. Go pick up a friend. Today is your day to do whatever you want to do. I want you to know your dad's going to be thinking about you all day long. And all of his thoughts are good. And in the midst of his greatest sin, that son experienced his father's compassion and grace, not his anger. And what he was testifying to at the funeral was it was the thing in his life that changed his life. It brought him to faith. Now, irresponsible parenting? Maybe. But let me say this. It's exactly the kind of thing that God would do. How do I know that? Because it's what the father in this story does. He ran, we're told, verse 20. Look at that. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. See, his father is full of self-emptying love. He ran. No patriarchs in this day. Uh, they never ran. It was a shameful thing. No matter. He thought nothing of his decorum. All that mattered was that, it was that his son was coming and he had so much affection for him in his heart that the only thing he could think of is how do I get to him as fast as I possibly can? And there were hugs and kisses and weeping. And even when the boy tried to make his confession, he was interrupted with, shh, we'll have none of that. The psalmist sings, he does not treat us as our sins deserve nor repay us according to our iniquities for his high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, 
so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. No matter who you are, no matter what sins you're guilty of, no matter what past you're walking out of on your way down the road towards home, the heart of the Heavenly Father towards you is such that he would not wait for you to arrive, but would run to meet you, weep over you, embrace you, clothe you, and celebrate your return. That's what God's like. It's not what people are like. I get that. But it's what God is like. And so the prophet says, who is like you? Pardoning iniquities and passing over transgression. Nobody acts like this. Nobody. But God does. And in the context, the point is, is if God treats us like this as our sins, uh, he treats us not as our sins deserve, but as merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love towards us, then we should be merciful and gracious towards one another. And abounding in steadfast love. But the older brother is not. And this is, this is the, the disruption of the whole story. Look at this boy. I mean, I, I don't have time to get into all of this, but verse 28, he's angry. He's proud. He has a rather high opinion of himself and a low opinion of everybody else. He's rude and demanding. When he speaks to his father down towards the end, there's no customary address. He doesn't start with, you know, oh, my father. He just launches into his complaint of a big insult. And, and really, the, the most startling thing is he's just completely without joy. And that's really the theme of the chapter. There's no joy. And the, the, the point Jesus is making here is that he, this boy, is completely unlike his father in every way. So how, these are the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious people. How is it that they got so far away from, you know, being like the one they say they worship? I mean, see, the teaching of the parable is that when you experience the love of the Father, you become like the Father in his love. It's just natural. It's as natural as my son. You know, I tell him all the time, look at your future, okay? This is your future. It's, it's as natural as that. When you experience the love of the Father, you become like him in his love. But this is especially hard for older brother types like me, like many of you. And the answer I want to end by, I, I want to I ask a question and answer it to end. And the question is just why? Why is this so hard? And the answer is that in his eyes, they were very different, but in truth, they were very much the same. See, in order for the older son to become like his father, he must first become like his younger brother. Remember, remember what's happening around Jesus that this parable is meant to explain. Look up there again one more time, that the tax collectors and sinners, the immoral, irreligious people are streaming to him. He's eating and celebrating with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the moral, religious, good guys are keeping their distance. They're put off by all of this. And there's even a point in Matthew's gospel, it's really startling, where Jesus says to the religious people, he turns to them, he says, these tax collectors and prostitutes are coming into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, he says, and you didn't believe him, but they do. And it's that word righteousness that's important. See, righteousness is not what you do. It's not your good works. That's the mistake. Here we're getting to the bottom of things. That idea of righteousness, it's not your good works, it's not what you do, it's a gift of God's grace given only to those who realize they don't have it. And that's the problem with these elder brother types of people who work hard and always do the right thing, that if they're not careful, what begins to happen in their heart is they, they count their good, this, I mean, it's good stuff they're doing, but it becomes more than just good, it becomes a righteousness for them. 
They begin to think, see, this is why I should be Jesus' favorite. Because look at all, all of these things I'm doing. I really have figured out how to be righteous. But the tax collector knows he's not. The prostitute's not under any delusion that she has a righteousness that she can offer to God. They're, they're, they're under no delusion that they can be good enough to get into the kingdom of heaven. And that's why they get in first. Because in order to get the righteousness you need, you have to know you don't have it. And it's a great principle. And it really needs, to, we need to flip We need to flip um, the way we talk about Christianity in this city upside down. And here's the way we need to flip it. Salvation. Salvation in Jesus Christ comes out of moral ruin, not moral achievement. And it's not until you find yourself in the pig pen with nothing. And your only hope is that your heavenly father is merciful. It's not until you get to that place that you find the thing you're looking for. You see the, the older son slaving in his father's field, has blinded him to his anger and bitterness, and how he's using the father to get what he really wants. He's not so unlike his younger brother as he might think. He's just, just as far away from the father's house, farther even, just as wrong about his father's heart. So the whole underlying theme of the passage is that the difference between the two boys is not that the one is good and the other is bad. The difference is that one repents and the other doesn't. The prodigal comes to his senses and returns home. It's the language of repentance. But as the parable closes, where's the older brother? Where is he? He's still outside. He won't come in. Will he? We are not told because Jesus wants those among us who are more like the older brother than the younger to feel the danger we really are in. Will the older son join the party? It depends. Will he repent? But his repentance is much harder. See, it's pretty straightforward for the younger boy. There he is in the pig pen with nothing to eat. He only needs to turn around and, and head towards home. He only needs to repent of his sins and come home to find his father. But the older boy, the good boy, see, the problem with him is he has to first repent of his righteousness and become a sinner so that he can repent of his sins and come home. Christianity addresses itself only to sinners. Only to sinners. Both irreligious and moral people and religious moral people are sinners. The problem is the irreligious and immoral people know it, and the religious and moral people often don't. And so the church resembles the elder brother too often, and we need to confess that. And I think it really is because it is full of older brother types who are very committed, very moral, and very lost. Christians don't just repent of sin, but of righteousness too. A Christian is a person who stopped trying to relate to God on the basis of of his performance. See, a Christian isn't a good person. We need to banish that way of talking. A Christian isn't a good person. You're not a Christian until you know you're not a good person. And so the old line in the hymn I meditated on, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see what needs to happen in some of our lives is we need to change the way we sing that. We need to say, we need to sing, I once was found, but finally now I know I'm lost. That would signal our conversion. Now let me finish with this, and I need to be done. The older brother, no doubt, considered himself the hero of the family. Firstborn sons were treated that way in these days, something I am, by the way, all in favor of carrying over into our day and time. (laughs) But he's not the hero. He's not the hero. Tim Keller wrote a book called Prodigal God which has changed the lives of many of the people, many people that I know. And in the book, he makes the point that is really brilliant. He says, Luke 15 is really one parable. 
It's three episodes, and Jonathan preached on the whole thing a few weeks ago. In, in the parable of the lost sheep at the beginning of Luke 15, and in the parable of the lost coin, there's someone, when whatever's lost gets lost, there's somebody who goes out and searches diligently for that thing which was lost. And so by the time you get to the third story, you, you hear about the plight of this lost son. You know that he's in a faraway country, and what you expect is that someone is going to set out and search for him, but who's, gonna, who's it going to be? And then you're surprised no one does. And Jesus is a masterful storyteller, and this is the point. It would have been the elder brother's job to go in search of his younger brother to bring him home. That was his position. That was what he was supposed to do. That, but that would have made him the hero. That would have made him the savior of the story. And he's not the savior. He needs a savior. This is what Jesus is trying to teach just as much as his younger brother. But there is a hero. There is an older brother who goes out in search of God's lost children and brings them home at his own expense. There's a true story of a young man who was taken as a POW in Vietnam, and when the family learned of his capture but couldn't get word through any official channel of his location or whether he was okay or not, his older brother flew to Vietnam, risked his life searching the jungles and the battlefields for his lost brother to bring him home. And it's said that despite the danger, he was never hurt or captured because the enemy was so moved by his love and dedication that that they left him alone, and he came to be known. They whispered his name, the brother. We have a brother like that. The commentators make the point that the younger brother coming home was at the expense of the older brother. We're told that before he left, the father divided the property between the two of them, so quite literally all the father had belonged to his oldest son by right. And for his brother to be forgiven and to be restored, he had to pay. And here's what Keller says. He says, on the cross, Jesus Christ, the true older brother, was stripped naked that we might be clothed with dignity and with a standing we don't deserve. He was treated as an outcast so that we could be brought into God's family freely by grace. There, Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice so that we might have the cup of the Father's joy. And when you and I see him loving us like that at such personal cost to himself, all of grace, we'll have no choice but to begin to live like the father in the story lives and not like the immoral or irreligious younger brother or moral religious older brother. And if you want to measure... If you want to measure to figure out where you are in this journey, just consider this. The passage is about joy. Just take the, take the measure of joy. Look at the very end of the passage. The Father says it was fitting, verse 32, to celebrate and be glad. It was the right thing to do. So non-Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're becoming a Christian, leave off from your rebellion and come home. Stop trying to find happiness apart from God. There is no such thing. Come home to the party. But Christian, Christian, Don't let your stubbornness keep you outside. Repent of your pride and your self-righteousness and come join the party. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful story that so reveals your heart to us. We confess to you that as soon as we read it, we immediately begin to make excuses for why it cannot be that the God of heaven really is like the Father in this story. We use theological categories and terminologies to explain away uh, the heart of this father for his sons because we just cannot imagine that you are a God like this and yet overwhelmingly the scripture says that you are and uh, it, is, it is our sin that keeps us uh, from, from settling into the truth that you really do love us this way. And So please forgive us and help us. Help us to believe it to be true and help us by your Holy Spirit as you intend to do that we would become like you in your love for us. 
in our love for others. That we would be a people known for our joy and our celebrating and our feasting in our city. Those who are captivated by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so full of joy and gratitude and thankfulness that the gospel takes root not only in us, but extends all throughout this city and this county that we love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, we got you out earlier than, than usual. That means you can stay around and mingle with people who are coming, okay? So don't take off. There's others that are coming for the next service. Stick around, hang out outside, and see them some. Uh, we are the community of the messed up, not the community of the made. In order to join this church, you have to admit that. And the, and, and the reality is, is that it's to those that the promise of this benediction comes, to those who know they don't have the strength they need, that his strength is promised, to those they know that they don't have the wisdom they need, that his wisdom is offered. That's the promise of this benediction, that in your need, his strength is sufficient. Not only that, but that in your messiness, that the promise of his spirit is the promise that he will not leave you there, but that he will continue to work to transform you into one who loves the way the Father in the story loves that's the promise of these words. And so receive the benediction then uh, as you go uh, on that mission. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.